On a hot August night 14 years ago, a woman in Lin Yi, China, began to feel strange. Strange in a familiar sort of way. Strange in a way she had felt a couple of times before. Very quickly she realized she was pregnant. And many of you know what that's like. I imagine it's an overwhelming realization for a lot of reasons. But for this woman who agreed to be interviewed by a journalist from America's National Public Radio on the condition that they didn't share her name, there was an added complication. Not a physical malady, not a relational problem between her and her husband. No, the the problem was that the enforcement of China's infamous one-child policy had just entered its strictest and most stringent phase in the city of Lin Yi, and the child in her womb would be her third. She knew what was coming. Family planning officials would visit the house, intimidate her and her husband, threaten them with exorbitant fines, demotions at work, social opprobrium, perhaps even physical violence. So she hid, like so many have done throughout the centuries. Several months later, her son was born an illegal immigrant to planet Earth undocumented by the Chinese government. Tens of thousands like him are living in China today. It's very hard for them to receive education, to find jobs, to live normal lives because of this policy. Can you imagine? And yet up until as recently as the last decade, sociologists, climate scientists, and political theorists around the world have publicly praised China's Malthusian policies as brave and wise. Only recently, in the last couple of years, Even its staunchest defenders have had to admit uh, that the policy was not just misguided, but extremely devastating in numerous ways. For example, from the time of its implementation until it was sunsetted in 2015, the disparity between the number of men and the number of women living in China surged to more than 30 million. That means that you could populate the state of Texas with the uh, the, the, the number of males outnumbering females in, uh, born in the last 40 years in China. Can you imagine living in that state? That would be horrible. But the discrepancy is indicative of the, the sobering reality. A vast multitude of children, mostly female, who were never permitted to see the light of day Their lives snuffed out through the practice of medically induced abortion. From an economic standpoint, the population of China is now aging at an unstable and unsustainable rate. According to some estimates, by 2050, there will be more retirees in China than the shrinking working population will be able to support. Think about it. After two generations of this, families who complied will have exactly one adult providing support to two aging parents and maybe potentially four aging grandparents, one person supporting six retirees. It's so bad that China has already made an about-face. They are paying people to have children, and if the birth rate doesn't rise as quickly as they feel they need it to be, they will resort to coercive measures. Chilling to think about. I don't know how they would even do that, but how damaging it can be when we abandon biblical ideals. And I thank God that we live in a country free from these tyrannical policies, and yet how close we are to falling prey to the same ideology which gave birth to the family planning efforts of the Chinese government. 
In our modern world, raising babies and children is looked at as either a laborious burden on society or a boutique luxury that should only be enjoyed by the wealthy, well-connected, those who have a measure of stability in their lives. All this is not to mention the battle raging over the Dobbs case in the United States Supreme Court. I mean, this is just, this is really relevant to us today. And in the midst of all this evil and insanity, I'm glad and I'm so thankful that the Bible is clear what it teaches about children, about the next generation, about mothers and fathers, about the joyful and infinitely important stewardship that we've been given with these precious little ones. Now, just a few moments ago, we, as a church, we made a commitment to the families that were standing before us. We committed to pray for them, to support them as the Lord leads. And so what I want to do today is to kind of expand on what it is that we just committed ourselves to do. What is the church's responsibility to the children of our members? What does it mean for us? This sermon is going to have two parts, doctrine and application, instruction and exhortation. I'm going to give you some explanation of the truth, and then I'm going to give you a series of imperatives that are based on that truth. So that's, let's begin this morning uh, by considering uh, the doctrine which undergirds our responsibility to our most precious stewardship. And you're, you're probably still wondering, what, why did we read the passage that we just read? And you're about to find out. Think about this. In Ephesians 6, the verses we read just moment ago, uh, a moment ago, in Colossians chapter 3, a parallel passage, Paul issues a command directly to children. That is remarkable. Uh, the command itself is so simple, it barely requires explanation at all. Children, obey your parents. Now, in our home, and this might be controversial, that was the first verse that our children learned. And it's simple. They know what it means. It's not always easy to do, but it's simple to understand. But have you ever stopped to consider the implications of such a command? In the first place, have you thought about how remarkable it is that the apostle of the Lord, that Paul would make a statement directly to these kids gathered in the church at Ephesus and Colossae? These are kids. They're children. They're minors. That at least in the case of Colossae, he had never met. He, some of these kids he had never met even in Ephesus, a place he had spent many years. Think about that for a moment. He didn't say what you and I would expect him to have said, what you and I might have said. He didn't say, parents, you make sure your kids obey. That's what we would have said. No, that's not what he said. He said, children, you obey. He spoke directly to the kids. This lone fact actually has wide implications for the way that we minister to the next generation in the church. Uh, there's an extreme approach to children's ministry among conservative Christians which reasons that since God gave the children to their parents, then the church's role is merely to support the parents in the rearing of children. But this is too much of a good thing. It's a reaction, an overreaction, I would say, to the entertainment-based children's ministry trends of the last 20 or 30 years. It's not correct to say that children are the sole responsibility of their parents. Clearly, the church itself has a responsibility toward the children, too. It's not the same. It's not as far-reaching as the responsibility of the parents. Of course not. But it is no less real. The apostle directly addresses the children, which demonstrates that it is normative in the church of Jesus Christ for a teacher who is not, a, not their parent to have authoritative teaching ministry toward the young people who are present in the church. 
This statement also indicates Paul's expectation that children would be present in the gathered assembly of the church. Uh, In fact, this expectation has strong precedent. In Nehemiah chapter 8, for example, uh, the scribes and the priests, they're said to uh, pull out the book of the law, and uh, they read it to the congregation in the public square. Everyone's standing there, and we're told that the men are there, the women are there, and all those who could understand. And the implication is that there were children standing there. There were children present, listening right alongside mom and dad. So just as an aside, for those of you who have young children, I hope you're eager for them to join you in gathered worship as soon as they're able to do so, because uh, this is God's plan for them. I I hope you creatively and energetically encourage them to listen, ask them what they heard, what they took away from the teaching, remind them of the sermon uh, text, bring it up later in the week. This is the norm. This is his expectation based on these passages. Uh, From time to time, people ask me, Jake, why don't we have children's church uh, for older kids? And one of the reasons, there's a couple reasons for that, but part of the reason is that as soon as they're able, it's important for kids to begin to participate in the life of the entire church. And you don't even need to wait until they age out of children's church. If you feel like your child's ready and they need to be over here, that's your choice. You bring them over here. We want them here. The apostle addresses children directly, and that that has important implications, but notice that there's even more to it than that. Now, I I didn't even realize this myself. It didn't sink in uh, until a couple of weeks ago, but this just blew me away. Notice that when Paul addresses the kids, particularly in Ephesians chapter 6, he addresses them as participants in the covenant of the church. Now, you're saying, what? What does that even mean? That just sounds like preacher talk. What, is that, what do you mean by that? It might not mean a lot to you, but let it sink in. Paul goes out of his way, think about this, to frame his exhortation to the children in covenant terms. Children, obey your parents. Listen, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a what? With a promise. That is remarkable. He purposely ties the command to obey with the covenant language of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And he underscores the fact that there is a promise attached to obedience. So I'll tell you how I understood that as a youngster. This, is, this was my understanding when I was a kid. Like, if you obey, then you'll get to live a long life. You do what's right, and you'll get a reward. You follow the rules, you deserve a prize. This is the simplistic way that I thought about this as a kid. And if you're a Christian, you should recognize that that is not the right way to read a passage like this one. It's the the basic truth of Christianity is that in Christ, we, we get exactly what we don't earn. We get what Christ earned. All true Christians recognize by the works of the law, no flesh is going to be justified in his sight. No one is going to reap life by sowing their own good deeds. And it's, it's not by works of righteousness that we've done that he saves us. It's according to God's mercy that he rescues us from judgment. So if you're not a Christian here today, understand that when you read, you, you may think that Christianity is like, you may have even heard people say, this book is like a manual for how to live. And what we find in here is a lot of instructions on how to live your best life or how to, you know, what God expects you to live. And that's only part of it, guys. Because especially in the New Testament, whenever God issues a command, it's always on the basis of a covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship is bought by the blood of Christ. See, Paul isn't saying obey and you'll earn a reward. He's saying you're part of the covenant community 
Now live like it and enjoy all of its benefits. Think of it in terms of the larger context of the book of Ephesians. Paul spends the first half of this book expounding upon the joys and the blessings of being united to Christ, being, excuse me, being the body of Christ, uh, of which Christ is the head, being the, uh, the building of which Christ is the cornerstone, being the people of God, being called and equipped as holy ones, the, the recipients of the new covenant and all its blessings, recipients of God's wonderful love in Jesus Christ. And then after like plumbing the depths of the gospel for three chapters, only then after expounding on these great truths does Paul begin to exhort believers to live like Jesus. He says, be imitators of God and walk in love. Walk worthy of the calling to to which you've been called. He doesn't say it until after he's laid the the foundation of the relationship with God in Christ. And it's underneath this heading, part of this overarching principle of identity followed by activity, that Paul includes this command to children, obey your parents. In other words, what I'm saying, this is so critical, is that Paul expects to address children as redeemed, full members of the new covenant of Jesus Christ, heirs of the same promises as the grown-ups who believe. He's saying, you, you kids, listen to me. You are in Christ. You live lives worthy of the calling you've received. You've been born again. Now live like it, act like it. By grace, you've been saved through faith. So obey your parents. Do what you've been called to do. Obey your parents in the Lord. That is massive because it demonstrates to us that it is normal to see children in the church come to faith in Christ, publicly declare their faith through baptism, and take their place as full members with all, with all the rights and the privileges that go along with membership in the, part of, in, in the people of God. This is huge. This means that the children of our church enjoy an honored place in the world means you have a, a relationship with the children who are in Christ that goes beyond just being buddies with their mom and dad. There's no greater honor than that we could bestow upon our children than that they be called the children of the Most High God in Christ. And we pray that that becomes true quickly with all of our children. With all that being said, though, it stands to reason that the church of Jesus Christ has a great and weighty responsibility toward the kids in our church. And so that's kind of the doctrinal foundation on which we can base a very practical question, like how do we as a church fulfill this responsibility, knowing that we as a church have a responsibility to minister to them directly, knowing that it's normal in the church for for us to see kids come to faith and become full members of the new covenant in Christ then what's our responsibility to them? How do we serve them? Well, it seems to me that uh, there are five ways in which we can invest in this precious stewardship. In the first place, we must welcome them. We must welcome them. You know, we live in a world in which children are just not always welcome. This is one of the things, quite frankly, that people are, are, are angry about right now. I mean, we all know that there are lecherous and irresponsible men who want to be able to enjoy themselves sexually but avoid the responsibility of raising children. And and everyone recognizes that that is reprehensible and unholy and immoral. And yet the cry of many in our world and in our culture is that women ought to have the right to do the same thing. That's backwards. What we should be saying is everyone should be holy. Holy. And take a responsibility. 
Because our world so often is convinced that children are a nuisance. They get in the way. They spoil our plans to make money or to travel or to finish school. And so they aren't welcome. Once they're born, we shunt them off to the babysitter or the daycare or we recruit a tablet or a TV to keep watch over them while we do something that we think is more important. And the sad thing is the church allows the spirit of the age to infiltrate our own hearts. And by the way, I'm including myself in this. I have four children of my own, so I know that this is the case. But our standard isn't the world, and it's certainly not ourselves. Our standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he said to the disciples. He scolded them for shooing away the children. He said, suffer the little children to come to me. He welcomed them. He said, you're valuable to me. You're worth my time and my attention. Do you remember the day when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey? And it was just days before he was to go to the cross. And it wasn't the important people, but the children who waved palm branches and cried, Hosanna. They worshiped him in simple faith while the priests and the pastors stood by and griped. The great London preacher Charles H. Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled The Children and Their Hosannas, likened the bellyaching of the Pharisees to the stuffy churchgoers of his own day. And I'll let you decide for yourself whether we have any of these around nowadays. But Spurgeon said that they uh, were there in his day. He says, I have met with that spirit in these days. Quote, for the Pharisees are not all dead, nor the scribes either. They may be dead literally, but their spiritual successors, are they not still among us? I suppose that the Pharisees would have said, we do not condemn their youth or their ignorance, but their excessive enthusiasm is quite annoying. If they walked steadily through the court and chanted Hosanna in a subdued tone, one could bear it. But to shout at that rate is going too far. These children cry Hosanna in the temple in quite a tumultuous fashion. Everything should be decorous and proper there. Yes, yes, I've heard the same thing often, Spurgeon says but there's not much in it. We can be overdone with propriety. Some of us are hampered and hindered by it, and in proportion as we get into that state, we, of course, resent anything that looks like enthusiasm. When we get contracted and official, when red tape and decorum tie us hand and foot, I feel inclined to cut the bonds and let the children in the fervor of their spirits have full liberty to cry, Hosanna in the temple and anywhere else. Well, what about us? Have red tape and decorum bound us hand and foot. Folks, it's as important to me as anybody else that you aren't distracted by noise or movement when I'm standing up here preaching. I mean, I am zealous for that. And as a father, I'm well aware of how loud and squirmy kids can be, but it's not my church, and it's not your church. It's Jesus' church, and he welcomes the children, and so should we. The truth is that children are as capable of faith as any adult, Uh, sometimes more so. They're capable of conviction and repentance in the power of the Spirit. They can be born again just like any other spiritually dead sinner walking around. I have preached to thousands of kids, and I am telling you, they may not have murdered anyone or cheated on a spouse or lived this lifetime of rebellion that the rest of us may have done, but I have seen the Spirit's work in convicting them of sin and convincing them that their disobedience, their dishonesty, their untruthfulness, their greed and covetousness has broken the heart of God and driven a wedge between them and their Creator. And I've seen their faces light up with joy on knowing that Christ has paid the price for them to be forgiven. They can get it. And it's a wonderful thing when they do. 
And if it's the case that they can deal in such serious, sober, eternal things in their own hearts, if Jesus welcomes them into his kingdom through faith, then is there any reason why we shouldn't welcome them too into our lives? Why shouldn't they know that not just their parents, but their whole church family loves them, values them, wants to listen to them, learn about their hopes and fears and dreams and spiritual ambitions? We must welcome them because they are our greatest stewardship. Secondly, we must teach them. We must teach them. Uh, We know the world is teaching them. Every book they read, every video game they play, every show or movie that they watch is baptizing them in a culture, telling them a story, ordering their values and affections, capturing their imaginations. Billions of dollars are being spent to give our best to the children and tell them the values of the world. But when our children come to church, are we as zealous to teach them as the world is? Do we give it our best? Do we prepare? Do we labor to make the truths of the Bible understandable and delightful for them? Men, you get excited to teach young people about how to throw a baseball or operate a weed eater or change the oil in your car, and that's wonderful. That is great. But when the time comes to teach the children the mighty acts of God and recount his glorious works and teach the kids how to read their Bible, how to pray, how to sing God's praises, where are we, men? Let me just say, you can do it. And the kids are eager to hear from you. They are. They see you. They watch you. And quite frankly, they need to see that the men, the ones God has called to protect and to provide for his church, that they care about the next generation and they care about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they care enough to stand up and give a reason for their hope in a way that even children can understand. Guys, they need us to do it. They're our most precious stewardship. Therefore, we must welcome them. We must teach them. Thirdly, we must bear the burdens of their parents. I've heard so many people over the years say something like, well, I, you know, I used to teach Sunday school. I used to volunteer in children's church. I used to volunteer in the nursery. And man, I... I paid my dues, and now it's somebody else's turn to do that. And there are a lot of ways in which a statement like that can make sense, so I don't mean to condemn if you've ever said that. But it concerns me to hear that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it shows me we often tend to do ministry, don't we, out of a sense of obligation rather than out of the overflow of our love for Jesus Christ. That's a problem. Uh, If that's taking place in your life, I'm going, I'm doing this because I have to do it. I'm glad you're keeping a commitment. Pay attention to that. Pursue a a vibrant, full joy in Christ. Don't ignore that sense of exhaustion and overburdenedness. Confess sin. Spend time in the Word. Make sure you're being fed. Cultivate a righteous rhythm of work and rest. Be on guard against a ministry divorced from heavenly affections. Secondly, it concerns me to hear that sort of thing because it's based on the idea that other people's children are not my concern. And that's just not true in the church as we've seen. When godly parents, listen, this, this is not an exaggeration. When godly parents pour their lives into their children in order to train them in righteousness and holiness, in order to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they are not just serving those children. They're not just serving themselves. They're serving all of us. They are... <laughs> After all, who are the leaders of our church going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 or 40? 
Isn't it going to be that rambunctious little boy with a fiendish smile? A penchant for punctuating your lessons with jokes that you don't think are very funny? Yeah, he's going to be the next deacon or elder. And given the fact that they're going to be leading the finance team or serving as deacons or elders one day or preaching on Sunday mornings, don't you think it would benefit everybody if we all made a little bit of an investment in these kids? Thirdly, the reason a statement like that concerns me is because it goes against the grain of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2? Uh, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, what he's saying is that the person who is modeling his life after the life of Jesus is going to bear the burdens of another. Christ didn't come to earth and say, well, I've got my burden. Do you guys get yours? No, he took our burden too. This is the whole heartbeat of the gospel. Like, he didn't come and say, that's their problem. He, he comes and he says, when we're being like Christ, we say, Christ bore my burden. I want to bear others' burdens. Isn't it a joy to be able to genuinely serve the mothers that we see herding their cats, you know, through the church lobby? Doesn't it give you joy to be able to provide some kind of help to see that you've actually been an encouragement? Doesn't it fill you with gratitude when someone does the same for you? When someone comes to you and says, I know you've got to take care of your mother this week, let me bring you something. When someone says, hey, I know you have this urgent project dumped on your lap at work, why don't you... Let me host community group at our house this week. Isn't that such a relief and a refreshment to you? If we're really going to bear our own burdens and nobody else's, then why, why would we even come to church? I mean, but in bearing the burdens of the parents who are raising their children for the Lord, we serve the Lord Jesus, we serve ourselves, and we serve the world. Because when those children, like arrows, are shot out into the world and they are ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the globe, I mean, we'll be glad that we spent that time. Consider the impact of an Awana leader or a Sunday school teacher whose young student grows up to, to be a cross-cultural worker among unreached peoples or a seminary professor or a godly deacon or a, a, a Sunday school teacher herself or a uh, a mother, whatever it is, I mean, the, the exponential multiplication of ministry impact is just infinite and unfathomable. So let's make an investment in our most precious stewardship. Let's bear the burdens of parents. Fourthly, we must pray for them. We must pray for them. We must pray for the children of our church's members. Just a few weeks ago, uh, we made the observation that Hannah's prayer in the book of 1 Samuel kind of sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. But the truth is that Hannah's prayer sets the stage for the entirety of Samuel's life. We're told that Hannah is a woman who, even before she knows that she's going to have a child, she prays to God out of her grief, and that habit continues all the way through uh, Samuel's life. Uh, where are the Hannahs? Where are the men and the women in the church who pray over the next generation? When are we going to be these people who labor in prayer before the throne of grace for the next generation? I'm so thankful that some of you do this and, and you're committed to this and you're, you make a habit of it. But, but folks, listen, do we think that these children need any less prayer than we did when we were growing up? That it's easier somehow to follow Christ now than it was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago? 
Certainly not. And don't think for a second that your prayers aren't being heard. It, uh, I think, for example, of the, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. It, it wouldn't be far-fetched to say that no single person has had a greater influence on the spread of the gospel throughout the American continent than John Wesley and his brother was almost right there with him. But it all started with the prayers of their mother, Susanna. Uh, Susanna was married to an irresponsible pastor who meddled in politics, political squabbles, and sequestered himself in his study. He actually left his wife for a period of time because they disagreed about local politics. Crazy. But in spite of the hardship she faced, in spite of burying nine children in infancy... In spite of her irresponsible and absent husband, Susanna always took the time to pray. Her children knew when mom has her apron tossed over her head, that's what she used to do, and she's sitting by the window, don't bother her. She called it her tent of meeting. And in that little tabernacle, she would study her Bible and cry out on behalf of her children, and her prayers were answered, and the fruit of her labor before the throne of grace was multiplied infinitely. The holiness movement has reached millions across the globe. Charles Wesley's hymns have put the gospel on the lips of Christians from all English-speaking denominations. So let's pray for our church's children. Let's follow her example. What a difference it could make. See, we come in on Wednesday evenings and we preach the gospel to our teenagers and to our children. What a difference it would make if we had a, a team of five or ten people who showed up and said, hey, we're just going to, you do the preaching, we'll do the praying. If we all maybe took five minutes to pray for the preaching of the gospel to our kids on Wednesday nights, to pray for their conversions, for their changed lives, for conviction of sin, and for the joy of our most precious stewardship, because the children of our church's members are that most precious stewardship, so it is our privilege to pray for them. Because they're our most precious stewardship, we must welcome them, we must teach them, we must bear the burdens of their parents, we must pray for them, and finally... It's our privilege to, to bless them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. In Numbers chapter 6, Aaron, the priest, and his sons, they were given the responsibility to remind the members of the covenant people of God that they were beloved by their creator. God gave them the authority to actually be channels of his covenant blessing toward the people of God. And they would say, the Lord bless you and keep you uh, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Family minister David Michael in his book, A Father's Guide to Blessing His Children, asserts, he says, from the biblical teaching and examples we have observed, it is reasonable to conclude that it's biblically appropriate for spiritual leaders in the home and church to pronounce blessings. Furthermore, if we consider the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter chapter 2, and the general instructions given by Jesus and Paul, it would seem that under the new covenant, any believer should feel the freedom to bless others. So at the very least, what our children need is what all of us need, to be reminded of the loyal love of God for us, a love purchased by the blood of Christ, a love that never stops and never runs out and never changes and never gives up, a love that can never be completely grasped but lays hold of us, a love that transforms us into the image of Christ. And actually, to return to our original passage in its larger context, and we don't have time to go through all of Ephesians, you can read it on your own later on. 
But one of the things that undergirds the commands in the second half of the book of Ephesians is this, this heart cry of Paul that we would know the love of Christ, that we would understand and comprehend with all the saints the depth and the height and the breadth of the love that Christ has for us. And if it's true that we need that, then our kids need that. And it's our privilege to remind them that for all who are in Christ, the Father's love is limitless. And I just want to ask, do you know that today? Do you know that that's true for you? Because quite frankly, the only way that we're going to be able to bless the next generation is if we are convinced in our own hearts and we know in our own spirit that we have been the recipients of that blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know there are some of you here today. It's Mother's Day. We have quite a few people here who are guests, and I want to thank you for being here. And maybe some of you, even if you're a regular here, I I don't know, uh, you're, you're really on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Like you don't know what you think. And the most loving thing that I can tell you today is that if you are not believing in Jesus, if you are not placing yourself in his hands, if your confidence isn't in Christ, then you are living outside of the kind of blessing that all of us need to live. A blessing that quite frankly we won't survive without. And to you I say, just like Jesus opened his arms to the little children, he opens his arms to anyone who makes himself like a little child. And he says, come, believe, accept the free gift of salvation to anyone who comes to Jesus and says, I can't do this on my own. If I try, I'm doomed. If it's all up to me, I am done. I need you, Jesus. Without you, I will never live. And if you become like that needy little child, if you humble yourself and say, I was wrong, I need forgiveness today, then you can walk in the blessing of knowing that God is your loving Father. Uh, Quite frankly, there's no better way to serve the coming generation than that, than to live before the Lord knowing for sure that you're a forgiven follower of Christ and that God's loyal love is reserved for you individually. Isn't that what we want for our kids? And therefore, won't we all give our lives to Jesus today? Would you bow with me for a moment as we pray together and consider these things? Father, your your word is so clear. It's normal, it's possible for kids, young people, to give their lives to your son, Jesus Christ, in faith and to become full participants of the new covenant. And, and, and given that that's the case, we've got a responsibility as a church toward them. And Lord, I pray that you would enable and empower your church to, to welcome the next generation, to teach them, to bear their parents' burdens, to pray for them, and to bless them. I pray that even as we're leaving today, that you would give each one of us a chance to look a child in the eye and say, God loves you in Christ, and your church loves you. Father, I pray for any who are hearing this today and, and know uh, by the conviction of your spirit that they stand outside of the blessing of the covenant. They know that they just don't have the confidence that they need to have in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that right now in this moment, as we take a, a, some time to respond to your word and song, I pray that uh, for each person that your spirit is convicting, that you would uh, drive these truths home. And that you would make all of us uh, just keep short accounts with you. And and if there's anything that we have uh, 
that, that, that you've convicted us of, I pray that you would, excuse me, give us the spiritual strength to repent and to move forward in the forgiveness provided by the blood of Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.